Scripture says people from every tribe and tongue and nation will sing the praises of Christ and exalt His name. And I think we just saw that here this morning. Well, good morning. Everybody get their coffee this morning? I'm not so sure. Did everybody drink decaf? John Rosima, decaf. <clears throat> well, we are in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We're going to feast on God's Word, this great gift that He has given to us and preserved through the centuries so we can have it on this very morning. God establishes church, and He's called us to worship Him, to praise Him, and delight in His Word. And I hope that we will do that this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 13, and you know by now, after about a year and a half, that the message, the main message of Matthew is that Jesus is king. And um, Kevin Warren brought us through some script, scriptures this morning in Sunday school, just showing us who Jesus is, who people say that he is, and who Jesus says that he is. Jesus is the king. Matthew says that he is king. But one thing that we're learning in this gospel of Matthew, and as he describes the king, is that Jesus is uh, not just a king that sits on the throne and barks orders, but this Jesus is a teaching king. This Jesus is a preaching king. And he comes with the message of his kingdom. And sometimes he declares that message very clearly and very simply with messages such as, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Very simple, very straightforward, very clear. Other times he... He makes it very clear, but goes a little deeper, like we experienced in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about how does it look, what does it look like to be blessed if you're in the kingdom? He talked about being poor in spirit, being merciful, being peacemakers. Again, very clear, deep, but clear. And he puts it right out there for everybody to hear it, to understand it. But our teaching king, preaching king, also has another way of getting his message about the kingdom across. And that would be by telling stories that we know of as parables. And we're going to look at some parables this morning in Matthew chapter 13. And these other te uh, techniques of teaching, plain, simple and clear, parables are intended to make us think. So he'll tell a story and it, it, it's told in a way where it's kind of like getting a truth in through the back door, if you will. So it's through a story rather than just coming right out and saying what he wants to say or to convey that spiritual truth. This technique is to use a story. And so what place do parables have? And what might God want to speak to our hearts through the eight parables that we will explore this morning in this chapter? And yeah, we're going to explore all eight because some of them teach the same message. But also, it's only been since 2007, so a mere 11 years ago, that we went through the parables one by one. And so you've already heard them, and I'm sure they're right up here in the front of your mind that we don't need to go through them again in a detailed manner. <clears throat> so I'm just going to kind of take a more of a, a broad spectrum view of the parables as they depict the glorious kingdom of God. But let me just lay 
a little bit of groundwork since I'm not going to look at all of them in detail. So what is a parable? Again, it's a story. It's a story that could be true. It's not like an allegory or it's not once upon a time. These are things that aren't necessarily true, but could be true. So there really could be a person that gets mugged on the side of the road and a good Samaritan that came along and helped him out. Or there really could be people that were very religious and clean on the outside that just snubbed their nose up at this person that was in dire straits and just keep walking on. Or somebody really could lose a precious coin in their home. So these are things that could be real. They're not allegories. Allegories are fun as well, but they're usually uh, animals or something to take on human characteristics. So this is uh, something that could be true. It's not make-believe. These aren't fairy tales. These are teachings that Jesus wants kingdom people to know. How are we to understand them? It's interesting that if you look at parables, because they are stories, a lot of times they get interpreted all over the place. I was tempted to read some of the interpretations of some of these parables that we're going to look at this morning. I thought, no, I'm not going to even spend my time doing that. But people can really come up with some really wild interpretations of what every little thing means in the story and its significance. Fortunately, most of the time, Jesus gives us the meaning of the parables. And he'll do that for us this morning. So how can we understand parables? And we'll look at a few more later down the road in Matthew as well. This, he's not finished telling them. But when we look at a, a parable, it's similar to any text that we would approach in the Scriptures. The first thing we want to think about or consider is... What would the original audience be hearing when Jesus spoke these words? So when he uses specific terms, because he's pulling specific stories to get a main spiritual truth conveyed, why does he use these figures? And, and what he says about them, what would they hear? So why would he talk about a father? Uh, what, what would come to their minds when he talks about priests? How did the people back in Bible days view priests? Or when he used the word prodigal, you know, wasteful. Uh, what would come to people's mind as they envision this father whose son just abandoned them and squandered everything? And this, this very dignified figure running after his son. What would come to their mind? What is he trying to convey there? So we want to think about the original hearers. Also, we want to realize that parables are told primarily to... To convey one main truth. Now you could have a, a few little sub-truths out here as well. But there's usually just one thing that Jesus wants us to understand. So we don't want to come up with 15, 20 different things and go all over the place. Because that's the whole purpose of a, a parable. Getting the truth through the back door, if you will. So we want to look for the main point. And then lastly, just as we approach Scripture... We want to ask ourselves, as we're hearing this and as God is giving us, giving us understanding, what do you want in my heart to change? What's not right in here? What can I do better? What do you want me to understand? What are you imparting to me so that I can live it out in a way that glorifies you? So that's how we approach these. Why do we have parables? I mean, it's a pretty effective way to just 
tell people things and declare propositional truths. So why would Jesus even take the time? I mean, kingdom message is important stuff. You don't want to risk that people might misunderstand it or miss the main truth altogether. So why does Jesus take the risk, so to speak, of even conveying kingdom truths through parables? Even the disciples asked this question in, in verse 10. And, we're going to, and I'm going to read a little bit of scripture along the way and then we'll get into the parables. But so he's speaking parables in chapter 13 and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? They might miss it. Matter of fact, we might miss it. I don't fully understand what you're talking about. Why are you coming at things through this way? And he gives this answer in verse 11. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. So parables have a twofold purpose. Parable, one of the purposes of speaking in parables is so that the children of God, to whom the truth has been given, they will be nourished and equipped and live their lives with a proper perspective of what the king is all about, what the kingdom is all about, and their place in it. So they're very, very important. And they are designed for us to read them and think, okay, as your child, as a citizen of your kingdom, what are you speaking to me in my little story, in my world? So they nourish us. They nurture us. They help us along the way. And they are revelations. This whole book is a revelation. And they're revealing things in new ways or maybe even new things. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, they knew the Messiah was coming. They knew the king was coming. He was promised and they were expecting him. And they were expecting him to be a victorious conqueror, which in their minds in Jesus's day meant this guy, when he comes, he is going to just stomp on his enemies. We're going to be set free from all our political enemies and our spiritual enemies and all our neighbors that that hold us in different forms of bondage. And he's going to reign literally and wield the sword. And yet he came and he was victorious, but it was by giving himself. It was through this, this backwards, if you will, way of giving himself into his, the hands of his enemies. And he conquered the world and frees people through his loving sacrifice. And the people needed to be told that. That needed to be revealed. So the things that kind of started in the Old Testament, the truths, are being the cans being opened up. And now eyes are being wide open to this plan that God had. A lot of times when Jesus spoke these parables, because they, in this aspect, were for those that it was given, the truth, he would take them to the side to make sure they understood it. And in private, he would explain the meaning. And that's why we have a lot of the meanings of the ones that we will look at this morning. So it's a way to care for his people. And, and by the way, the kingdom is given. Revelation is, is given 
We can't open our, our, our own eyes. We can't transform our own hearts. We can't save ourselves. We can't just say, you know what? I've lived a sinful life and today is the day that I'm just going to save myself. I'm just going to start doing good and I'm going to start believing in God. It's, it's a supernatural thing. And it's not given to everybody. He says, so there are those that stay in the dark, according to Jesus. One of or the other purpose of parables is to reveal those that don't know the truth. Is to reveal those that do live in darkness. And because their hearts are hard and they reject Christ, they're not given the true meaning. And a lot of times we, we think, well, why, why would he give truth to others, give some eyes to see and ears to hear and not others? And I think the scripture would say it's just sheer mercy. It's just sheer mercy. We'll look at a passage shortly in Isaiah where he prophesied, God prophesied there would come a time. As a matter of fact, I'll just read it right now. He's um, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand, indeed, in their case, the prophecy Isaiah is fulfilled. Isaiah said, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. So they, their eyes aren't open, but they don't want them to be open. They're not seeking the things of God. They have no desire for Him. And as we learned in the passage of the unpardonable sin, when we keep saying no to the power of the Holy Spirit, as He wants to bring conviction, and as God does a wonderful job of opening our eyes up to what we already know, He exists, and we're working very hard and aggressively to suppress the truth, and we just keep suppressing it and reject it. There can come a time where we say that final no. Forget it. I don't want you, God. And our hearts just lock. And the reason that's an unpardonable sin is because the only way we can be saved is to repent. And if we have shut our heart out of repentance, then there's no way in the world we're going to be saved. And these people are dulling their hearts. Do you ever see that in the world today? Do you ever see things that lose their luster? Well, the message of the gospel and the king can lose the luster in people's minds, not in real life, because he's a glorious God that reigns over all. But in our minds or in the way we look at him or think of him, it's just all cloudy. So we can't see him for the glorious God he is. And then we don't marvel at the glorious truths that he has. So some people don't want him. And they are not given the light. And sometimes we struggle with this idea of, well, why would God bring me into the kingdom and enlighten me and not others? And I think we struggle with this idea and it not being fair because we start in the wrong position in our thinking. We often start with we all deserve to be saved because we're all on equal footing. And it's just no fair that some are and some aren't. Whereas the scripture says, no, that's not where you start. You start over here. Y'all deserve wrath. Y'all deserve the same thing. You're right. Y'all deserve wrath. But it is only by mercy that 
anybody's eyes are open. It is only by mercy that this king invites anyone into his kingdom and shows him the way. And I think it's Romans 9, 16. The Apostle Paul is explaining this. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The whole idea of mercy is that I, I pick and I choose. It's not that some worked harder than others. It is a divine decision of the king. So there's a twofold purpose for parables. And he talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Parables are used to teach about that. So what when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, what is he really talking about? Because we know that God is the king of all things. He reigns and rules sovereign. So not even a sparrow hits the ground without him knowing about it and being sovereignly involved in that. Not, not, a, not a piece of lightning strikes anywhere, even where nobody lives, hears, or sees it without the sovereign hand of God. So he reigns and rules in that way. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the, the exact details of the reign and rule of Christ through his redemptive work. It's what Christ through his redemptive work is winning back. And we looked at this just last time because... When Jesus, when Jesus exercises a demon out of somebody, that's the king at work. And that's the king who basically, though the Pharisees accused him of working for Satan. The only reason you have this, this power is because you're working for Satan. And he says, no, I have come into Satan's turf and I bound the strong man and I put him in the corner and I'm freeing his subjects because I overpowered him. So we're talking about the redemptive work of Christ to change hearts, to transform hearts, to humble those that are that are proud, to help people let go of the things of the world. This is the redemptive reign and rule of Christ that comes into our hearts and brings the change that we need. So the kingdom of heaven and Jesus has the authority, as we see in this book of Matthew, have, have you found a limitation to the authority that Christ has yet? Because already, just in the 13 chapters, everything that is wicked and evil that this world has to offer, that Satan can throw at anybody, or even the natural disasters, everything Jesus has spoken to, he has authority over, even an unclean heart. Kevin remind us this morning, we can forgive one another. We have that power and we can make that choice, but only God can forgive somebody else. Only God can forgive all of us. And Jesus has already extended forgiveness of sins. So he is redeeming this cursed world. So that's our foundation. That's our background. And with that said, we want to look at these parables. There's eight in this chapter. And I'm going to make haste through these. So we first see the parable of the sower. I'm going to read 1 through 9 and 18 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil and immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures it for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and Proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Good story. What's the main point? What are the characters? What are we supposed to be thinking about? Well, we don't have to wonder because Jesus interprets it. For us, the seeds and the soil and the dirt is probably a good thing because I'd have been all over the place with that one. We think about this and we immediately realize as we look at you have a sower and you have seeds and then you have the soil. In this story, the sower never changes. And in this story, the seeds never change. But it's the soil. The soil's what changes. The soil's what's not right in this particular story. So what do these things mean? Well, of course, the sower is Jesus. He is sowing the seed. The seed is the gospel message. That's what redeems people. It's what brings salvation. It's what must be received. The sower is Jesus. The sower could also be the disciples. Anyone that brings the gospel to others, the message. And then they bring the seed, the gospel message. It's the good news that if you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, you will be saved from the wrath of God to come. And so you have sowers and you have the seeds going out. But the main point in here is the way it's received because the soil is the human heart. The soil in this story is your heart. And Jesus gives four types of hearts, four types of responses to the seeds that are scattered. By the way, the seeds are scattered by sowers. So the hearts are hearing. But they respond differently. Some of them rebel immediately. Some of them entertain the idea for a little while. Some entertain the idea and embrace it for a little while longer. And then others have that fertile, fertile, humble heart. And the truth gets in there and it just grows. It grows in different stages. Some yield a hundred, some 60, some 30. So what might we expect among the people of God that have received the seed of the gospel in their hearts? 
They're not all going to look the same. Some of them are going to be barren mega fruit. Some of them are going to have pretty decent amounts of fruit. Some of them are just getting started. There's not a lot. But the gospel's still in there. The transformation has taken place. But if we look at the other three soils, you have first the soil or the heart where the truth is just snatched away. And of course, take this in the context of the Pharisees because that's what... That's who Jesus has been confronting all this time. And these are people that think they're in the kingdom of God. And yet he is standing there right before him, God in the flesh, and they don't know him. He's giving these precious kingdom truths and they're not hearing it. They don't listen to it right immediately. It doesn't even have time. It hits their armor. It hits their hard heart. The enemy's all involved in that as well. They don't want the truth because the enemy doesn't want to have the truth. It's, we're, we're in, they're in cahoots with evil. When we reject Christ, we are doing exactly what the enemy wants us to do. And so it doesn't take root at all. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever tried to witness to anybody like that? They just are not interested. It just hits a brick wall. But there's another category of hearts out there as the gospel goes out. Not the snatched, but the scorched. And there are people, I've had friends that I've introduced the gospel to, and I got all excited because they were really interested in it. And I thought that they had, I thought that they embraced it, that they were saved or they were going to get saved. Had a nephew that was so interested in it. And as I was sharing the gospel with him and he was entertaining the idea and he was, he began to even talk to God and pray to God. And I was so excited. I thought this is the real thing. But the seed was, Scorched. It just grew a little bit. And then lo and behold, one day I was excited about a conversation. And I was like, how's your walk going? He's like, well, I don't know that the God that we've been talking about is necessarily the God of the scripture. And I was like, oh. so there's a lot of gods out there. And I'm not sure which one is, is working in me. So, man, scorched. It, it grew a little bit, but it's gone, never to return to this day. But there's still hope. So it gets snatched. It gets scorched. You know, people where it looks like something happened, but it's just very short lived. George Whitfield used to preach the great revivalist preacher used to preach to thousands and thousands and thousands of people, sometimes at one time. And he was a powerful preacher of the gospel. And this was during the days of revival. And sometimes people would say, how many of them got saved at that time you spoke? How many got saved? And he would say, I guess we'll see in a couple years. And we look at today, decisions. How many decisions were made? Who accepted Christ? We're all about the decision. And we can write that number on there and then we know, well, at least... Ten more are going to the kingdom. No, we don't. Not according to this parable. Sometimes things take time. It's just a short-lived little burst of spirituality and it doesn't go anywhere. There's no salvation there. And then we have those that are choked. Now, this takes even longer. This person's gone longer with Christ. And you, you, you see positive things. Maybe they're starting to go to church, they're attending Bible studies, but they still have the cares of the world in here. There's a big battle going on. And 
I would say that this is mostly primarily the American church because we aren't quite being persecuted. Whereas the person who uh, thinks, yeah, I think I'm going to try this Christian stuff out. And then as soon as you get mocked, I know that's not for me. A little persecution, it snuffs it out. But this choke thing is where you have the seductions of the world, the promises of the world of peace and prosperity. And that's all we're surrounded with. All these promises of this is going this product is going to give your heart exactly what it's longing for. And this vacation and this car or this other marriage or this other spouse or whatever it is, all the, the promises of the world. And they're they're at war in our hearts because then we read what Scripture says and it actually says, well, those are the things that you actually need to be careful about. They're the things that can drag you down to hell. They're the things that you wind up worshiping money and, and health and even family if you're not careful. The great American things or things of the West. And so the desires of the world can choke out the truths of the gospel. There's a battle there for a while, but eventually we've got to make decisions, don't we? We've got to make decisions of what is the main thing in our lives. And with the media and all the entertainment industry, there are so many things that are pulling us away. You can probably think of a hundred reasons why you shouldn't sit down and spend time with God because there's so much to do. So much. There's new headlines every morning and they're juicy. Even in politics now, they're juicy. What Trump do now? It's something new every day. What? Who got caught in this affair? You know, all these things in the entertainment. So it, it can pull us away. We have to make decisions. What's the main thing in my life? Why am I here? What am I living for? Do I need to give my mind and my eyes and my imagination to these things when I have all of this? And it gets choked out. Modern technology. Big enticements. What kind of heart do we have this morning? Where is it? Very possible that there are people in here this morning that maybe you're through that stage where you thought you were saved, but it was snatched. Peer pressure just took it right away. Or maybe there's some in here this morning where you're in that battle of being choked and you really don't know if you're a true believer or not. Because you have not landed and made the commitment. You have got to make that decision before God this morning because you're not promised tomorrow. That's another truth of the scripture. And I used to use that. Oh, maybe tomorrow, some, someday I can see myself as being a Christian because, yeah, I think it's true. Only by God's grace do we have life every day. And you are not guaranteed tomorrow. So we want to know, we want to think as the Holy Spirit works in us, where is my heart today? And then for those that bear fruit, what kind of fruit am I bearing for the kingdom? Yeah, I'm a gospel believer. Of course, I'm a Christian. I've given my life to it. How much of my life? Can I give more? Am I investing more in the world? 50, 50, 50 in the world and 50 in the kingdom of God. What does that look like for you? We have to wrestle with this because it's a backdoor way of Jesus saying, I want your heart and I want all of it. And here's what it looks like for those of you that give me your heart. You're going to bear fruit. And you'll do it by the power of God. Stories are powerful things. And then we have another one. The weeds. 
Take two at a time because this is the same message. The weeds and the net. What has the kingdom of God got to do with weeds and nets? Verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So there's the parable. Once again, he gives us the interpretation. Verse 36. Is that right? Yeah, so um, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And then verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point of these parables is the same. That's why we have grouped them together. The first parable we have weeds, and then we have well, wheat and tare. We have the good fruit, we have the weeds that will not bear anything good. The question in the story is well, do we separate them now? Is this a good time to get rid of the weeds? And in the kingdom of God, according to his plan, no. That is something we will have to wait for. And so this teaches us that among the sons of God are the sons of the devil. And they would be the ones that perhaps, like the Pharisees, give the appearance of being of God and being clean, but in their hearts is evil and wickedness. So they may be a part of the church. They may even be in church leadership. How many times do we have to read headlines about abominations that happen in the church. And just this week, we read of another discovery within the Catholic Church. And I'm not just bashing Catholics because it's in all churches, but the Catholic Church has been inundated with criminal activity and sexual abuse 
And it's been covered up. And thank God it's coming out into the open. But there are a lot of hurts and pains because of people of God, supposedly, that you're supposed to be able to trust, shepherds that are using that authority and that position simply to abuse people and take advantage of people. Now, judgment sometimes happens here in this life, but we're not going to get them all. And so there's going to be a time, Jesus says, yeah, you have within the same group of people, whether it's Christian, non-Christian, or those who are portraying to be Christians. What does the scripture say about the devil? How does it describe him? Well, he runs around with a red suit, a pointy tail and a pitchfork. So he's really easy to recognize. And then we know to lock the doors if we see him coming on the front porch, right? Scripture says he's an angel of light. Oh, he's going to look good. He's, he's, he's a master of disguises. And so the teaching of the kingdom is, as true believers, we will have amongst ourselves tares. And we just need to wait and we need to be patient. But the day is coming when they will be separated, they will be divided, and they will be judged. And it will be a fierce kind of judgment. The harvest represents the future judgment. Somebody's getting judged in the back, I think, back there. Doesn't sound good. It's a little bit about this description here. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, it's, it's torturous, it's terrifying, it's wicked, it's grim. And he says, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. You're not, we're not, we're not going to be able to keep going with this stuff. Those that rebel against the Lord, the, the day of reckoning is coming. He's going to throw them into the fiery furnace, weeping, gnashing of teeth. And it's a time where there's a tremendous celebration of the sons of God. They will shine like lights and the wicked will receive the fierce wrath of God upon them. It's a day of joy and a day of dread. John MacArthur says this coming judgment, of course, is inevitable. He says the dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the sea and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny. Believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal judgment. A hard heart, a superficial heart, a divided heart. All will face God's wrath. And in like no one can. Hear the words of John Bunyan, the Puritan. I, I kind of edited this, by the way, because he speaks in the old English. And uh, it's a little bit hard to understand, so I tweaked it. <clears throat> in hell, you will have only one company, that of the devils. They alone will be with you. In this world, when you sense true evil and darkness... When you sense that Satan or his devils are near, your flesh crawls and your hair stands on end and you tremble. What will you do when you find yourself not just near, but right in the center of all such beings with their torment and anguish upon you, howling, roaring and screeching in such a hideous manner that you will be at your wits end and ready to go stark mad? 
if after 10,000 years an end should come, there would be comfort. But this is your misery forever to be in the company of innumerable howling devils. And you will be there more years than there are stars in the sky, drops in the ocean and grains of sand on the shore. You will be there forever. And Jesus lovingly tells us how the kingdom comes about. And there is inevitably a day of judgment. And it's not just a slap on the wrist. It is perpetual, eternal torment. We are either forever in or forever out. And that's what it looks like to be out. Moving along, we see two more, the mustard seed and the yeast. And we learn yet another teaching about the kingdom. He put another parable, verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So these parables teach the same point, but in different ways. The idea is this. The kingdom grows. The kingdom has small beginnings. The kingdom often uses small, seemingly insignificant things like this little mustard seed. Often uses small, seemingly insignificant beginnings. Insignificant people. But when the kingdom comes upon these things, it stretches it. It grows it. And the mustard seed grows into a tree. And that signifies the outward growth that will be very visible and that can be seen. So you think about, even as he speaks these words, he just has 12 fairly insignificant men. What a small beginning. What a huge boast to talk about this message that I'm giving to you right now that I'm preaching. The day will come when it will spread and spread and spread and grow into a big, powerful tree and it will shade many people. And we've already seen that come true. And those 12 insignificant men, as Acts says, turn the world upside down with the kingdom of the message. And so it spreads outwardly. But it also, the parable of the yeast spreads inwardly. And you picture somebody making bread. We got some bread makers in this church. And the yeast gets in there and it's kneaded. And it's just a little bit. And eventually it works its way throughout. And when the kingdom of God comes into our hearts, it starts in small ways, but it begins to work and need. And it goes after this and it goes after that. And it begins to judge our thoughts. It begins to change our motives. It begins to change our beliefs. It begins to change the way we look at God and the way we look at other people. And slowly it's this inward change that's taking place so that it's visible on the outside. That yeast going to work. The kingdom of God does not leave you alone and it will not leave you the same. You will change for the glory of God. And hopefully we will change in such a way that we will desire to spread the gospel as well. The seeds. And sometimes that kingdom that changes in us is so powerful that we begin to influence others around us because they see Christ in us. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Revelation eleven fifteen. 
and of his Messiah, he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom is going forth outwardly. The kingdom is growing inwardly. And we have the parable of the treasure and the pearl, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, that's pretty simple parable to understand, isn't it? There's just an obvious truth here. That when you find this king and you embrace the message, it is more valuable to you than anything. And is so valuable to you that the things that you used to value in this world are now insignificant. As a matter of fact, you want to use those things to purchase this thing of great value. You will quickly and easily give these things up. That's how valuable and precious and priceless Jesus is in the gospel way. The message is clear. How valuable is Jesus to us? How, what have we given up for the sake of the kingdom? How evident is it in our lives that the thing that we treasure the most in all of existence is Christ the King and it's He alone that we want to exalt and give our lives to? How evident is that in us? According to Jesus' teaching, this is how the gospel overtakes hearts. And it's the effect. And will give up anything to be with Christ. People in that day hid their money in places because they didn't have banks. They didn't have safes. So they found a safe place. Hide it outside by the tree. So when the robbers come, they won't get it. Apparently this guy hid it and forgot about it. And somebody else found it. And the pearls as well. Better than money. Better than health. Better than anything that this world can produce or offer. Value. hundred times more. And I think the disciples took this to heart because they gave their lives. And they did not regret it. Because they realized that anything that they lose in this world will be offered to them a hundredfold in the world to come. Do we live like this reality that Jesus is painting for us? And then lastly, and very quickly, the parable of the homeowner, 51 and 52. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so Jesus now that he has taught them. And they have understood he's basically calling calling them teachers. They're scribes. They're teachers of the law now. And now they know Old Testament truths, the old treasures, in light of the new treasures of the new covenant. And how the kingdom really works. How people really get saved. How people stay out of it. How they get into it. How it grows. What's going to happen in the end. And yeah, even within the kingdom, you got the wheat and the tares and it gets pretty messy sometimes. And all of these things... They can now teach to others. So in conclusion, 
What do we take away? What have we learned? Well, sometimes we need to leave things behind, don't we? There's things that we need to leave behind and let go of in order to gain more of the kingdom. And we've learned that we need to see Christ in the kingdom as far more significant and valuable than any other thing that this world can offer. And we need to make sure that we have truly embraced the gospel and that it's there and it's there for good and that we haven't hardened our hearts and we haven't let the we're not letting the things of the world choke it out. Or that we don't have a divided heart. I think these parables teach us that we need to guard our hearts. We need to guard the soil of our heart. Because that's the only way the gospel grows in it. When it's humble, when it's contrite, when it's broken. And we need to confidently spread this treasured message as children of God. Spread the gift. What has been given to us? The, the kingdom has got to be given before it's received. And we can be his servants to give it to others. Just like our heart grieves over sin and is broken and is, and is thirsty for something real and true. There are other hearts out there with that same need. We need to warn people. Part of being a believer in Christ is warning people about the dragnet. It's warning people about the judgment to come. And I thank God that a believer had the guts and courage to warn me about the judgment to come. Because by God's grace, I turned my ways. Perpetual torment is a real thing. This isn't a once upon a time book. It's not a fairy tale. This is the reality of the king. And we would do well to get into it and find our place in it and interpret our lives in view of it. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.